Well, it's always a joy to gather together, uh, all of us, on these family Sundays with, with all the kids. Now, uh, really, our entire church family, as we said at the beginning of the service this morning. Now, uh, just a forewarning, it's probably going to be a little bit louder in here uh, with all the kids rustling around. That's okay. Uh, that does not bother me at all. Don't let it bother you at all. Uh, now, kids in here, uh, I typically try to on a Sunday morning. Uh, I go for about 40 minutes or so, sometimes uh, longer, sometimes much longer. Uh, today, I'm shooting for uh, 30 minutes, and so I, I'd love for you to stay locked in as we walk through this text together. So if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles with all of us, all right? And, and two, go, go to Mark 9. Parents, help your kids find Mark chapter 9. Uh, in their Bibles. We want to read through this passage together with our own eyes. It won't be up on the screens because we want to see it with our own eyes in the Bibles in our laps. So, so kids, take notes. Um, underline things in your Bibles. Ask questions as you read and do the, the, the work of, of digging through God's Word and seeking to understand what God is saying to us through His Word. Like This is how He speaks to us. And so this morning, once all, we're going to engage together with God this morning through his word. Bible's open in our laps, uh, ready to hear from him and listen to what he has to say. And, and by God's grace, with hearts eager to obey out of love and joy for who he is. And so for all of that, we need help. We need help. Um, uh, with, without God's spirit at work through his word, all you're going to hear is words. Right, So we need help this morning. So with that, let's pray and ask God to help us hear from him and respond to him. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning asking for your help, thanking you for your word, thanking you that you have spoken to us, that, that your word leads us to the Son, leads us to Jesus, help us to see Jesus in this passage today. May, may we see our, ourselves and our fallenness and our own brokenness and our need for the gospel in this text today. May we, may we be reminded of your grace and your mercy. And then at the same time, may this passage, Jesus' own teaching here, push us to pursue a life of holiness, to understand what true followers of Christ really are, what true discipleship is. Help us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, let's just get out in the open here this morning. The passage that we heard read is a hard text. Jesus uses some pretty extreme language in that teaching here to emphasize a really, really important point. I, I mean, Jesus is talking about, you talk about extreme language, he's talking about having a stone hung around someone's neck and thrown into the sea, which would cause them to drown. He's talking about cutting off hands and feet, plucking out eyes. He's talking about the horrors of hell. Those are not easy things for us to hear from Jesus, and not typically what we think of a lot of times when we think of Jesus' teaching. We much rather prefer what was even read here this morning, Jesus' teaching of, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Like We like when we hear that teaching. We like when he's healing people. We like it when he's forgiving sin and when he's showing compassion to the crowds. So, so what is up with throwing people into the sea? What is, what is he doing when he's talking about cutting off body parts? What's all this talk about hell? Now, we desperately, desperately need this text. We need, if you felt it, the, the grittiness of this text to kind of rub up against us. Like, like sandpaper rubs against the coarseness of a piece of wood to, to smooth it out, to shape it. That's what, 
That's what teaching like this does. That's what Jesus is seeking to do here. He's using extreme language, radical language, to, to kind of cut through the noise and the distraction of life to get us, to get here, his disciples, to hear something incredibly important and something that would be life-changing for them. Now, now we're no, we may think of exaggerated language, and we're no strangers to exaggerated language. I mean, what do kids typically say when they're hungry? Right? They're hungry, and they say, I'm starving. I'm starving. On a family vacation, when you're driving on the road, and maybe you've been on the road for a couple hours, what are the things you're going to hear your kids saying from the back seat, right? This is taking forever. Like, we're never going to get there, right? That's exaggerated language that we, that we use, that we hear often. We use, we're using in those moments this intense language to try and emphasize what we're feeling inside. But, but the difference between exaggerated language and what Jesus is doing here is that exaggeration is, is language that's regarded as larger, better, or worse than actual reality. Meaning, when we say, or when our kids say, I'm starving, they're not really starving. They're hungry, but they're not starving. When, when, when you're driving on family vacation and it's literally, or more, my daughter likes to say legitly, right? Uh, it's not even a word, legitly taken forever to get there, right? It's, that's exaggeration. And, and we might be tempted in a moment here to think maybe that's what Jesus is doing here, but, but I don't think he is. I don't think Jesus is exaggerating. I think he's using intense, weighty, radical, serious language to actually emphasize an actual reality. So, so though he's not, he's not speaking literally on, uh, on this idea that we need to literally cut off our hands or, or our feet or to pluck, off, pluck out our eyes if they cause us to sin, he is saying that sin is that serious and should be met with a serious response. I, I said just a minute ago that we desperately need this text. Why is that? Because the problem we face is that so often we just really don't take Jesus that seriously. That, that so often we just don't take sin seriously. That we just really so often don't take God's word seriously. Like, like we treat sin like we're driving a mile or two over the speed limit. Oh, so I went 32 and a 30. Yeah, big deal. Cops aren't even going to pull me over for that. Right? And so often we just... We, we kind of see sin that way. Yeah, it was an infraction, but it's not that big. And that's how, we, that's how we kind of engage with sin in our lives. So we'll flirt with sin rather than take it seriously. We deceive ourselves into thinking we can control it on our own, that we can maybe just hide it. We, can, we, we don't want to live an open, honest, transparent, gospel-centered community with others to help us battle against the flesh People don't oftentimes know who we really are and what we really struggle with because all of a sudden we're vulnerable, we're weak, and so we often just hide it and pretend everything's fine. We so often really do not follow Jesus as he calls us to follow him. This teaching here at the end of Mark 9 really began back in Mark 8. It began back in Mark 8 when Peter if you remember several weeks ago, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, meaning you're, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior of the world. And, and then from that moment, Jesus begins to immediately teach on his impending suffering. He begins to immediately teach on his death and resurrection. 
And in that moment, the disciples, they, they buckle and they don't, they don't like what they're hearing. Peter especially doesn't like what he's hearing. He rebukes Jesus. Don't talk that way. Right? Because the disciples, they don't want to suffer. They don't want to see Jesus suffer. King doesn't suffer. What are you talking about? But Jesus continually has been bringing them over these past couple chapters saying, no, this is what it means to follow me. I'm going to suffer and die. If you're going to follow me, here's what it means. He said this in Mark 8, verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me. Right? Are, you, are you that anyone? If you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, he's talking to you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it means you are dying to yourself. And it means you are taking your cross daily ready to suffer, desiring to center your entire life around the glory of Christ's name. It means that he is uppermost in my heart, my thoughts, my affections, and that the fruit of my life, how I live, it's revealing that to be true. And so for the last chapter, Jesus has been teaching, here's what discipleship truly looks like. So in Mark 9, 1 through 13, we, we saw Jesus transfigured. So he is the glorious king of kings. He is the savior of the world, God in the flesh. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In Mark 9, 14 through 29, a, a true disciple then rests in the power of God, not in themselves. In verses 33 through 41, a true disciple doesn't seek to elevate themselves over others. But instead, they put others first and they find their true greatness in serving and being the least. And here we are, verses 42 through 50, seeing that true discipleship, true discipleship requires radical devotion. True discipleship requires radical devotion. See, Jesus is calling us all to a, a higher view of discipleship, a higher view of, of God's glory and his holiness. Jesus is calling us here to a, a weightier view of the utter destructiveness of sin and, and a, an appropriate response to sin. Jesus calls, Jesus is called to discipleship demands weighty things from us. That's what we're going to see in the text this morning. Weighty things, three demands of discipleship from Mark 9. Number one, we see that, that discipleship demands integrity. Discipleship demands integrity. All right, so let's, let's go through the text here again. So Bible's open in our laps. Look at, let's look at verse 42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now the word sin here could also be translated as to make someone stumble or to make someone fall away. And so Jesus here, he's speaking specifically to the 12 disciples. And so these disciples are the ones that, that he would send into the world to preach and to proclaim the gospel. The, the, these apostles here would become the foundation of the church, of Christ. We see that in Ephesians 2.20. And we see that with them being the foundation, they see Jesus is the cornerstone, holds it all together. His person, his life, his teaching. Jesus is everything the church centers, its foundation is built upon. And so he's talking to his disciples here and, and calling to this weighty demand, this high demand, a high demand to all those who are called to lead in God's church, meaning that, meaning that elders and, and deacons must lead and serve with integrity. And where they fail, where they fall short, and 
Listen, leaders will fall short. But the fruit of a, of a leader who walks in integrity is that in their falling, it's met with confession and repentance. That's integrity. See, far too many people within, within the church, and I'm speaking now kind of regarding the, the global church here, is far too many people have been wounded and hurt and alienated or abused by those in leadership who are using and have used their God-given authority not to lead and to shepherd and to serve others, but instead to abuse, to dominate, to take advantage of those that they're called to care for, that they seek control over others, and that's, this becomes the pattern in their life. This is what they're known for. They want control. And far too many people through that type of leadership and seeing that in, in the lives of those that God's called to, to serve and, and, and care for his church, they, they see this lack of integrity, and so people abandon, have abandoned the church because of this, because of this lack of integrity within even the very leadership of the church. And so instead of confession and repentance from, from a leader who falls short, there's blame shifting and excuse making. This is a high demand of those called to lead, but, but also this doesn't just apply to those in leadership. All disciples of Jesus are called to walk in integrity. And just as poor leadership can cause a new or immature or or weak believer to stumble or fall away from pursuing Jesus, so can hypocritical living amongst people who claim to follow Jesus. See, a a church can plaster whatever mission statement they want on their front doors. And they 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 can say, we are all about loving God and loving people, and we're all about serving others and making disciples and finding joy. But if someone walks in, looking for help, looking for answers, looking for hope, looking for community, looking for something that's different than what the world has to offer them. And all they discover is a group of people living more like the world rather than living as sold-out followers of Jesus, and they're not going to be drawn to the beauty of knowing Christ. They'll simply fall away. Listen, the aim of our lives, maybe this isn't heard often, But it needs to be said that the aim of our lives as Christ followers, this is going to sound strange, maybe, but the aim of our lives as Christ followers is perfection. It's holiness. The aim of our lives is Christ-likeness. Like, our lives must be moving in that direction, toward holiness, toward being more and more like Christ. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter says in in his letter, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That should be the trajectory of our lives. Perfection, holiness, Christ-likeness. Now, if your your reaction to that statement is, "I, I can't do that, good, That's why we need the cross. That's why we need Christ and his life and his death. Right? See, integrity doesn't mean that we never make a mistake. It means we own up to our mistakes and we plead the blood of Christ. That's what integrity is. And that that as we fall short, we're put in sin to death as we'll get to, and then we continue to to move toward holiness because that's what Christ calls us to. See, this is the hope of the gospel. Where we fall short, Christ is sufficient. But at the same time, please hear me, because this is where laziness can come in. Um, don't, don't mistake Christ's sufficiency or don't let the sufficiency of Christ 
tempt you to think that you don't really need to pursue integrity. That the sufficiency of Christ means I don't really need to pursue holiness because anytime I fall short, eh, Jesus will just forgive me each time I mess up, so I don't really need to continue to work toward this with grace-driven effort. That's a misunderstanding of discipleship. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel and what Christ calls us to. And so demand number one is discipleship demands integrity. But let's point, go to point number two here and let, let's press this point even further, right? Let's let the sandpaperiness of this text, the grittiness of this text can continue to do its, its work. So point number two is that discipleship demands holiness. Discipleship demands holiness. All right, pick it up in verse uh, 43. So Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you're reading through the text and you're noticing, hey, there's no verse, uh, verse 44 and there's no verse 46, what's happening there, just really quickly, uh, just as, as scribes would, uh, would, would rewrite and, and, and translate and, and keep copies of Scripture going, uh, in some later text, verse 48, when it talks about the, the, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, that was found to be in uh, verse 46 and verse 46, whatever those two verses are missing, but they weren't found in the original text. So later on, scribes were wanting to hammer this point home of the horror of hell. So the reason why you might not see it in your scripture is just because it's not in the original text, but we're not missing anything. It was just how the scribes were writing things later on, but what they're trying to emphasize was this point of the horror of hell and the seriousness of what Jesus is trying to teach, because Jesus here is again using extreme language to emphasize a very serious point, that we must take sin and the pursuit of holiness seriously. In 2003, a mountaineer by the name of Aaron Ralston, he was doing a solo descent of Blue John Canyon in southeastern Utah. And if you know his story, you know that as he was descending this, this, this canyon, a boulder dislodged and it pinned his right wrist against a canyon wall. And he was stuck there for five days. For five days, he tried to break free, but, but nothing was working. He could not get free from being dislodged there. And nobody knew where he was because as he left that morning, he didn't tell anybody where he was going. He had no more water. He had no more food. He knew if he stayed there any longer, he wasn't going to survive. And so with a, with a dull pocket knife, and I'll be careful because the kids are in here, I'll just say this. He did what he had to do to get his arm free. But he's alive today. Aaron's alive today because of that extreme action. Now, all of us would admit that what Aaron did in that moment on that fifth day was radical that that was an extreme action. But I also don't think anybody here would say that that wasn't exactly what he needed to do to get free. See, we, we'd say he did exactly what he needed to do to survive, to live. See, a serious situation called for a serious response. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Sin is serious and must be met with a serious response. Jesus' reference to the hand, to the foot, and the eye, he, these are representing things, like the hand represents what we do. 
The foot represents where we go, the eyes, what we see. See, Jesus is talking about the totality of our lives, that every last bit of it belongs to him, and that every last bit of our life is to be used to bring glory to the name of Christ. And so, so he's not talking about a literal physical mutilation here, but as one author said, he is talking about spiritual mortification, meaning this, that we remove anything in our life that, that deters us from affection for and the pursuit of Christ. We remove anything in our life that tempts us towards sin. Anything. Why? Because sin will destroy you. It'll destroy you. It is what sin does. Sin never makes a person's life better. It destroys. That's what the enemy does. He seeks to steal, kill, destroy. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and to now us who are reading Mark's words. He's saying, hear me. Jesus is saying, it is better to endure on this earth a healthy self-denial, the removal of a hand, a foot, an eye, and to enter into the kingdom of God through Christ than to go bearing your sin, your unrepentant sin, all the way to an eternal hell, a place of utter spiritual ruin, a place of eternal torment. Hell, as horrific as it is, is an appropriate response to the belittlement of God's holy name. And this demand for holiness that Jesus calls his disciples, those who follow him, really is a command to obedience. That's what this is. The demand for holiness is a command to obedience. And the pursuit of holiness is nothing short than a zealous desire to conform to the nature and character of God, to be more like Jesus and to remove anything in our life that robs us of our affection for Christ or or drifts us away from being like him. We get rid of it because that's our aim. That's what we're about as disciples of Jesus. And if your response to this demand is, "I, I I can't defeat sin on my own, then you're correct, which is why this is the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ. He's already defeated it for you. Like if you are in Christ, you are not under sin's dominion and reign. You're not. We may live as if we are, but you aren't. See, hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So we stop walking in defeat, and we start walking in obedience. Jerry Bridges, in his masterful work, The Pursuit of Holiness, said this, 
He says we need to reckon on the fact that we died to sin's reign, that it no longer has any dominion over us, that God has united us with the, the risen Christ and all his power and has given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and rest in God's provision will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. Or one more quote from Charles Spurgeon who said, Salvation is, in short, deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the guilt of it, from the punishment of it, from the power of it. If then any man is saved, he is delivered from the reigning power of sin. It is not possible, therefore, that any man should, he should have salvation and yet continue in the indulgence of sin. Jesus Christ came to open a hospital for sin-sick souls, not that they might remain sick in a hospital, but might go out of it healed. I love that. You see, a true disciple of Jesus is going to, by the power of Christ, pursue holiness and put anything to death that stands in the way. And so what is it in your life that needs to be cut off so that you might pursue holiness? That's our aim. It's what Jesus calls us to. Lastly, third demand. His discipleship demands sacrifice. Let's finish this out in verses 49 and 50. So Mark says, for everyone, or Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, what's Jesus saying? Well, I, I think he's coming back again to the theme of suffering. At least in verse 49 he is. So just as Jesus suffered, so will those who follow him. Meaning, following Jesus requires sacrifice. So to stand upon the truth in light of of God's word in the midst of, a, of, of darkness in this world means that it will bring reproach from a hostile world. So, so he's saying everyone's going to be salted with fire, with trials, and so we are to be ready. Don't look to escape that. This is what discipleship demands and calls for, sacrifice, as we hold fast to the truth, hold fast to Christ. But, but look at verse 50, because what's he saying in that final verse about salt? There's an old Jewish saying that says the world cannot survive without salt. You see, in this day, uh, as Jesus was speaking and teaching, salt was essential to the Jewish life. It, it was primarily used to keep food from, from rotting, and so salt was used as this preservative. If you have church background, you've probably heard that before. And so, yes, in this way, Jesus is saying salt is good, but what's he mean then when he starts to say, but if it loses its, its saltiness, what's that all about? Well, I'm not a chemist by any stretch of imagination. I had to look all this up. But salt is stable. It, it actually doesn't ever lose on its own its salty property. So salt just sitting in a pile here for decades after decades would still, after that time, would still taste like salt. It'd still be salt. It doesn't lose its salty property. And so in one way, what Jesus is, is saying is, if you truly are a disciple, if you truly do belong to me, you will then by, by grace remain so. And so you, you will continue to be a preserving influence in a decaying world, all right? As, as we live as followers of a good and sovereign king, we're showing a decaying and rotting world the goodness of what Christ has called us to and what God has designed us for. See, this is what the church is. It's what it's to be. The church is to be this outpost of, of the kingdom. So, so that means that in the way that we live and love and serve and the way in which we give, we, we're showing the world, which is rotting and decaying and sin, we're showing 
a better way, a countercultural way of life which lines up with how God the Creator designed us to live, which leads to human flourishing and joy and life and salvation. And so in, in the way that we live and how we suffer and how we sacrifice and how we, and how we love one another, it shows the, the world the goodness of King Jesus. And then we call others to come under the good reign and rule of Jesus. But, but Jesus said, but if salt loses its saltiness, he says it becomes worthless. So again, what's he, what's he talking about? He's, he's using kind of extreme language. He's trying to draw a, a point here so that we would listen. You see, salt on its own was, was good and was a preservative. But there's also time during this day and age there with Jesus that, that salt would often become mixed with another property. And so when salt became mixed with something else, as would often happen during this time, then it would become worthless in what it was seeking to do. It would, it would not be a preservative. In fact, if it was, salt was used and it was mixed with another property, something else, it would actually damage what it was meaning to preserve. And so I believe Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, guys, don't become mixed up with the world. If you do, if you start looking like the world and yet you're saying you follow me, you're going to lose your effectiveness You're going to lose your preserving impact in a decaying world. This is exactly what he's saying because because what's he say next at the end of verse 50? He says, be at peace with one another. Well, well, think back. What had had just taken place back in verses 33 through 37? If you skim back there, you see that the disciples are fighting with one another. They're arguing with one another about who's number one. Who's the greatest among them? And Jesus says, As he teaches in those verses, don't get mixed up with the world's view of greatness, but instead be a servant, right? Be at peace with one another. He's saying this is where true greatness is found. It's a countercultural way of of living. And so he's saying when the church looks more like the culture rather than Christ, we, we begin to lose our preserving impact in a world in need. When we refuse to suffer, when we refuse to sacrifice, when we fight and bicker amongst ourselves, when comfort and self is king above all, we end up, all we end up really doing is reflecting the world right back to itself. And then we no longer then are a countercultural people. We no longer then are an outpost of the kingdom seeking to bring new life to people that are dead in sin. In this case, Jesus would look at the church, look at you as a t- and say, I have no use for you. As we close this morning, I don't think I need to convince anyone in here that we're living in a world wrought with decay. This week's proved that once again. It's a world that's broken, desperately sick. That reality doesn't necessarily anger me. It saddens me. What angers me is that it just doesn't seem like the church is having that preserving impact in the culture but that that the church seems to be looking more like the world rather than like Christ. And because of that, the world continues to decay and rot. And and, and Christians become sometimes good at pointing our fingers at the world and complaining about how messed up it is. But really, our response should be to say, we got to get out there and let's be in the world but not of it. Let me bring this maybe a little bit closer to home here. Has, these are questions we should ask. We should ask. Has our surrounding community gotten better or worse in the 60 years that Calvary Baptist Church has been in existence? 
right? Like if we're to be a preserving impact in a decaying world, we've got to ask these questions. Has our community, has it gotten better or worse in the 60 years that, that God by his grace has had these doors open here at 1017 North School Street? If we close the doors today, would our neighborhood even notice? And what I mean by that is, would our neighborhood be affected by that? They might notice, like, hey, it doesn't seem like they're meeting anymore. But would our neighborhood be like, you, you can't close your doors? Would our neighborhood be affected by it? What about your own neighborhood? How are you revealing the glory and the goodness of King Jesus to your neighbors? Parents, on this family Sunday, let me press you here. When your kids graduate, when they move out, what will they say when they look back that had priority in your home? What was the one thing that they will look back on and say, this one thing, this mattered? What was the one thing that nothing ever interfered with this? Right? Will, will, they, will they say Jesus was primary in our entire life? Everything that we did revolved around the goodness of who Christ is that Jesus was uppermost, that the gathering of God's people to make much of Jesus and then live as citizens of this kingdom is what reigned supreme in our home. Will they see God's church, will they see his bride as essential to their lives, as a necessary component in the pursuit of holiness? Or will Jesus and his church be seen as merely an add-on to whenever it fits in their schedule? These are hard questions that we have to ask Brothers and sisters, when we look back at our time as members of this local church, what will we say was primary? Will it be the glory of Christ? Will it be our commitment to gathering with God's people? Will it be the gospel to the unreached, to raise up leaders, to go plant churches, to multiply and further the kingdom of God, to pursue holiness together and take great great risks to further the name of Christ Like, these are the weighty demands of discipleship. This is what Jesus calls us to. God, help us. God, help us to be the disciples Jesus has called us to be, to take seriously the call of Christ in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, a people in need. Father, I I stand up here, one, um, convicted, as there's been much repenting taking place in my office this week as I've walked through this text and, and placed my life up against what you call us to. And so texts like this are never meant to depress us, where, where we sit and be like, oh, woe is me, I can't do anything right. But, but texts like this, Jesus' hard teachings like this, are meant for us to, to confess and repent where we fall short. And then to plead the blood of Christ and realize that, that our acceptance is not based upon how good we live. It's based upon how good Jesus lived for us in his death, his resurrection. And so, God, I I, I want us to be pushed here from your word because this is good for us. It's good for us. It's good for our kids to hear these sometimes difficult texts and for for our kids to see mom and dad wrestling through these things, to to come to them and say, maybe, maybe to their sons or daughters to say, you know what, mom and dad need to confess to you. We need to ask your forgiveness for how we've led. We've not shown Jesus as primary. Mom and dad need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. Man, what a, what a good thing that would be for, for our kids to see a, a spirit of humility even within us as we lead our homes, 
doesn't mean we have to have every decision correct and right. It just means that we're following Christ. When we mess up or we fall short, we, we point them to say we need Jesus. So God, help us. Help us to do what you've called us to be. Call us to what true discipleship really is. It, it demands radical devotion. And so where, where are we devoting our lives to you and what needs to be cut off? How do we need to be the salt and, a, pres- and, and, and a, uh, a preservative to a decaying and rotting world? May we go with your strength, with your power today for your glory and your name to build your kingdom. To God, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.